Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now. UMFM. This is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Oz, and that was Thomas Dibdahl with 45, a new single. 
kicking things off for us tonight. Busy show. Earlier this week, Sam Weber came to town opening for Tara Lightfoot. I had him in for a live session and interview. We're going to hear that in a while. We'll also hear an interview I did with author Sean Michaels, who won the Giller for Us Conductors and who visited town to read from his new book, The Wagers, at McNally Robinson and stopped by to talk about it at length with me. Uh, but first, we're going to talk to Kaya Cater, who is coming to town with her Polaris-nominated album, Grenades, playing the West End Cultural Center on November 7th. My thanks to all of you who pledged during Pledgerama, a smashing success. Thanks to Hut Hut for playing at Into the Music and to Into the Music for having us to close things off last Friday. Uh, I'll be announcing the drop card draw winner a little later. But first, new from Monophonics, this is Chances here on 101.5 UMFM. <laughs>
right her, her album grenades nominated for the polaris prize bringing it to the west end cultural center on thursday november 7th kaya cater joins me by phone how are you doing i'm doing well michael how are you i'm doing very well now uh this record is a, a pretty personal one for you it's your, your father's story uh, told in song in, in some sense and as I understand, I read an interview you did with Rolling Stone around the time the album was about to be released, and it apparently came following like a tumultuous year for you in 2017, and, and that kind of caused you to ask your dad about your history. What can you can you talk about that tumult? Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, 2017 was the first was essentially the year that. Um, Donald Trump was inaugurated. I don't want to spend too much time on him. Yeah, um, sure. No, I get but, it. Yeah, he, he sucks I up think, a lot of oxygen. Yeah, I you know I, I think it's it was more for me this kind of populism that was rising like whack a mole throughout the West, and and this this feeling of um, of you know actual you know hate and resentment for the other. Mm. Um, and this kind of abject blame that was being placed on this kind of general terrifying notion of immigrants and refugees. And, you know, I, you know, for a long time, I wasn't totally interested in my dad's story and we never really talked about it. And, you know, your parents are your parents until you come to this realization that they had entire lives before you existed. And so, you know, I, I realized that, you know, my, my dad and I never really talked about how he came to Canada from Grenada and um, what he experienced during the Grenadian Revolution and the invasion of Grenada by the United States under Ronald Reagan. And, um, you know, and I, and I, I think that political element in just seeking to understand what was going on now through the roots of the past. Um, it was a really personal way for me to encounter all those things and, you know, kind of have a, have removed that layer of that carapace of protection that you usually put on when you read about politics. You kind of try not to be too personally involved um, in the goings on of the world or else you would feel kind of destroyed by them, I, I think, because mm-hmm. there's, there's so many things going wrong all the time and there's so much suffering and and so, you know, connecting through that experience through one person, through my dad, and then through my extent, through my extended family behind him, it was it was just a way for me to kind of bite off a morsel of this larger question that I was exploring, which is, you know, what is belonging and um, and who who are we as a people and who do we want to be? Um, and and I think I was examining that question for myself as well, like who who am I? as a person and who do I want to be in the world. So yeah, a lot of tumult. <laughs> yeah. So you sat down with a digital recorder with your dad and, and started asking him questions. Did you have like, like a set list of questions you wanted to address or did you just kind of be like, tell me your story or what, how did you approach that? Well, it was funny because originally when I, when I went in to talk to him about it, we, you know, we're both very stubborn and we we didn't quite see eye to eye on the interview. I I have you know I've I've studied with a few people who 
are great um, oral historians. And one of the greatest pieces of advice I got is that, you know, when you start an interview, you shouldn't try and lead it in any particular direction. It's sometimes more interesting if you let it kind of grow on its own. And so my only question to him was, um, like, tell, tell me about you and where your people come from. And so we went all the way back to Grenada, and then he's, his story sort of elaborated from there. But his first answers to me were seemed to me to be very, like, rehearsed and almost, like, disassociated, maybe because he'd been used to telling the story so much, like, for his immigration papers and, and, and all that. And, um, and I really wanted to like, to tell him like, just, you know, ignore, ignore the recorder. Like we're just, we're having a conversation and, and it, it was, a, it was a serious le- uh, learning experience for me too, which is like, you know, if you have a relationship as intimate as a father and daughter, it's really not an interview. It's, it's more of a conversation and, and just letting that conversation expand. Um, and, I, and eventually we got into a place where we both forgot that the recorder was there and that we were just having a conversation and it felt much more natural. So if he'd had to go through the process of like kind of talking about his history for, for immigration status and stuff like that, I, I have to imagine in those instances it was more like prove yourself rather than reveal yourself and you were looking for the latter? Exactly. Yeah, that's a really great way to put it. It was exactly that. It was exactly, you know, um, I th- I think this experience that that a lot of um, immigrants go through, which is, you know, tell your story as factually as possible and make us believe that you deserve to be here, you know, and I, I wanted the other side, which is, you know, that frightening, like, I wanted the, the questions that he asked himself when he was making the decision to come here and wondering if it was the right decision and all of those things that to me are far closer to the human reaction to reality and to choice and all of that. Mm-hmm. Now you weave his voice into the record. You take stuff from that, those recordings. Was that always in, like intended? Like, did you anticipate doing that when you set out on this or did that come about kind of as a result of writing the songs and feeling like you should have his voice in there as well? Yeah, um, you know, I'd love to say that I had that idea right from the beginning and that, you know, I, I, it was just, I, I, my own pure genius told me that um, the voice would be in the recordings. But uh, I think really it was, the, the recordings were more of an um, exploratory mission for me. And, um, it, and also like uh, in a really kind of like private, selfish way, like, I didn't, I didn't want to lose that. And I, and I, you know, I knew that I was, you know, my dad's not going to be around forever. And so it's like, how, how do you preserve those conversations so that they don't get lost in like the abstract memory of time? Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe that's like a, it's like a very poetic romantic notion that I would pass these recordings down to my kids or whatever but um it suddenly felt as the songs were coming together that the songs themselves couldn't tell the story that there needed to be some other framework um a framework of reality really that that kind of helped anchor a lo- uh, anchor a lot of the songs because a lot of my songwriting is very abstract it's not very literal all the time 
And so I wanted to put in a, a literal frame and, and have him literally explaining what it was like to experience war and conflict as a kid and, and you know, that those things that we don't often think about and the trauma that we don't often think about, you know, people experiencing before they even experience the ordeal of coming to a new country and adapting to new languages and new cultures. Um, and, and I really admire him and thank him for being willing to go there with me because I know that it, it's a very, very, very hard thing for him to talk about, for anybody to talk about, and, and for him to give me his blessing to, like, put it on an album and have it out in the world. It's like if, if I was talking to my therapist or something and, and he took the most sensitive thing that I had said in my session and was like, cool, can I make this art now? You know, so I, I know that there's a real person behind those recordings and someone who, you know, needed to give me his approval before um, I could use those recordings. For sure. Now you have these interviews, uh, this interview and these, this like story, then how do you go about crafting songs out of that? Like what's, what's that process? Like, like do you kind of take like sort of episodic things that you want to address and, and write around it? Or are you kind of writing from a feeling that you got from those interview that interview? Um, probably, I, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think every, every, every song is different. Mm. Um, I think sometimes I start writing and I'm not quite sure what it's about and it kind of reveals itself to me in time. And then sometimes, you know, I, I really have a serious goal um, of what I want to talk about, like Grenades, the title song, was very, very much, you know, incorporating tropical themes and, and you know, the, the dichotomy between, like, water and plants and then, like, metal and artillery fire and, and all that. And so um, Grenades was a very intentional thing, but it really varies. Right. Now, you worked with Aaron Costello on this record. Yeah. Uh, was it like that you had, you know, crossed paths as musicians before this or like, how did you land on her as a producer and, and what, what was it about her that you wanted her, her hand at the helm of some sort? Yeah. Well, um, I've known Erin for a long time since I was pretty young, like in my mid teens, I grew up in the folk music scene. Um, my mom, Tamara Cater, um, was actually the executive director of the Winnipeg Folk Festival for a few years. So I feel like I had uh, the privilege of just being around musicians a lot more when I was a kid, mm. when I was young. And so I met Erin kind of through that scene. And uh, I always loved her albums. I love uh, Down Below the Status Quo, and I, I really liked um, the instrumentation that she was using. Uh, and then, you know, I discovered that she was doing a little bit more producing and it, it was really exciting to me. Not many people know this, but Erin has a serious, serious background in um, in arranging uh, for like arranging horns, arranging uh, strings. Um, she also was like an electronic musician for years before she started songwriting and, and moving more into soul. Um, and so she just struck me as a really, really extremely versatile artist and someone who wasn't kind of, um, who, who wasn't limited by any particular genre. And I'm really drawn to those people because 
I feel like they are able to service the music and my music in a really cool way because they're, they're not these artificial limitations that are set, you know, like, oh, I play banjo, therefore I need a fiddle, an upright bass, and acoustic rhythm guitar in my band. Like, she, as a producer, she had a lot of really, really great ideas about how to, um, how to make and help grenades come alive. And she was also a, a very, very good partner in in editing my songs because she's a songwriter herself and and you know I, there's something that intrigued me about the fact that she's produced her own records and she's seen the record making process both from you know as a songwriter and also um as someone who's who's trying to um orchestrate uh the larger sound and uh, and so we spent quite a few days you know cutting verses she would say, hmm, like, it might be nice if you change this chord structure here. And I really, really needed that. I really, really needed someone um, who I trusted who could, you know, give me some ideas to make my songwriting stronger and more interesting. And that that side of it just came really naturally to her. So in in conclusion, I can't um, I can't praise her enough, as you can see. <laughs> sure enough. Yeah, she's great. <laughs> Your banjo is not like I mean on on a lot of like kind of banjo oriented records it's front and center or like the sound sound is very like high in the mix. This is a much more like blended one and yours is one instrument amongst many. Was that like a conscious decision or did that just kind of come about through the songs themselves? I think it came about through the songs themselves. I think if I if I were to return to the record, I would bring the banjo up. I think I was, you know, something about my relationship with the banjo was a little bit what I was struggling with at the time that I made that I made the record, and I think I was deeply wishing that I was not a banjo player because I was kind of facing the limitations of my instrument and wanting to transcend that, and so I wrote songs on guitar and on piano and and. Um, and yeah, I just I think I had this like resentment for the banjo and I just wanted to prove that I could be a songwriter without being a banjo player because for so long I'd been identified as like a like an old time banjo player and singer. Mm-hmm. Um and I've you know, since making the record that was over a year ago and I've I've come back to the banjo in in a in a I think in a healthier way now. Um but it's really interesting. It's like it's interesting to see, you know, what 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 your mental state is when you're making these records because I think you can get pretty strung out on like making the best art that you can, and I think a lot of the time, like the record making process has allowed for a lot of dysfunction. Like I was reading about. Um, Fleetwood Mac making rumors and they were just like fighting That's like peak dysfunction it, like, right there. Yeah, and 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 they they did make incredible music but it, it I think, you know, I was like very romantically interested in the idea of like being this tortured artist and like nobody understands me and I don't want to have like any banjo on this record. I want it to be everything but banjo. And so I think that like what you're hearing is that kind of conflict that was happening and I think now I would maybe like have the banjo be featured more 
more presently. So it was like a reactionary uh, approach to things. What lured you back to the banjo then? Was there like a specific kind of event or, you know, some, something that um, occurred to you? I th- I, yeah, I mean, I think it was maybe, and I'm not sure if this is the healthiest thing either, but I think it was maybe the, the praise, that the critical praise that Grenades got. I, I realized, you know, I was like, oh, I'm, I, I can be known for my songwriting and that, and that's okay. And also, you know, it's, it's, I think it's just this thing that you, you kind of have to, you have to leave things and explore different directions in order to come back to them. And now, I mean, I think I see my banjo playing as something that's unique and part of who I am. And if someone looks at my banjo playing and, and decides to pigeonhole it into like old time or whatever, you know, first of all, it's a very privileged problem to have. And second of all, it doesn't matter. Like I can just keep on making the music that I want to make and people can categorize it the way that they want to. But like, I know that I have the capacity to be my own artist and to change and to improve with every record that I make. Well, uh, I want to get you to pick a track off Grenades that we can play for listeners before I let you go. And if there's a reason you're picking that song in particular, or if you have an anecdote about it, I'd love to hear that. Sure, yeah. Um, uh, My choice would be New Colossus. It's the first track on the album. Uh, It's probably the song I'm most proud of. I spent a lot of time writing and rewriting that song. It was very impish and and hard to pin down. Uh, But... um, the most of the lyrics um, revolve around math. So the first lyric is, New Colossus teaches us the sacred math, uh, stalks the limits of my living room and cuts me clean in half. Um, and so I don't know if your listeners are interested in this, but they, they can listen to um, the kind of mathiness that happens throughout the song. And uh, it was inspired by a poem by Emma Lazarus called uh, New Colossus, which is the poem that um, is uh, that kind of greeted um, new immigrants to the U.S. And it's giving your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I think. Um, and so I, I just kind of took took that concept and exploded it. And um, yeah, so, that's New Colossus. <laughs> so that. That poem is the one with those the, that stanza, like the "Give Me Your Tired" is is New Colossus. Yeah. Okay, I've I've always known obviously the the those words, but did not know the name of the poem. And that's yeah, that's interesting to know it's called. And New and New Colossus is is the Statue of Liberty, uh, because there there was a a Colossus in um, somewhere in Greece that was a, a giant 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 statue, um, and it was destroyed. Oh, I think through war. Um, and so Emma Lazarus dubbed the Statue of Liberty the New Colossus. So essentially the 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 the, the statue and the representation of the, the new world. All right. Well, we'll give that one a listen. Uh, November 7th at the West End Cultural Center. Looking forward to having you here in Winnipeg. Kai, thanks very much for taking some time to talk about the record. Thank you so much, Michael.
Sean Michaels, author of The Wagers. Welcome. Thanks, Michael. So, 
have you been asked to synopsize this book in any way? Because <laughs> is it possible? It's, uh, I mean, it's a deceptively, yeah, multi-tiered, multi-staged novel. Um, I like to say that it's a book about luck. Okay. I like to say that it is a magical heist novel about a man whose family owns a grocery, grocery store and who wishes he were a comedian or wants to be a stand-up comedian and, go, and does go looking for uh, a different kind of lucky break. Yeah, it seems to pivot like three or four times Like yes, in, in terms of establishing itself. It, was that like did you have a conception of those kind of pivots and this kind of meandering yes initially yes i really did i mean not <laughs> not meandering but that kind of strong left turn i didn't want it to feel like it was just wa- where it wandered yeah and i don't mean to say but it wanders. the uh, but the i i mean i've always loved books that do that not not a twist like it's not the idea of something you think you know being completely turned on its head though in some ways there's some twists in this book but that feeling, I always think of it as a trap door opening up. And you're in this, you know, you're in a room, you think you know everything about this set, this location, this home, and then a trap door opens up and there's a whole world waiting beneath you. And then hopefully another trap door can open and, and you realize there's another world again. And so I did very much want this to be a book that opens as uh, maybe a little bit exaggerated, a little bit hyperkinetic, but essentially a naturalistic sort of family personal character story mm-hmm. and then ends up as a motorcycle race through the desert chased by robots uh but like gets there through a series of, of trap deliberate doors. steps yeah the was the character of theo like kind of the first person that you had or did you have kind of like the plot mechanics in mind and then try to choose a protagonist who would go through this the piece i liked was because this book came out of a lot of conversations I've had just with other artists over the years. So musicians and painters and writers and, and not just artists, but creative people or people who are, ser- who, are, who, think, who are kind of searchers in their life. And there's something that a lot of people face, I think, which is not knowing whether you should be doing what you're doing because you haven't had a certain kind of uh, success. You know, the success that's often defined from by kind of representations in, in, in the culture, maybe by neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. But um, we know what success looks like. And if, you've, if the life you have is anything other than that, it can kind of cause this recurrent sort of crisis. Mm-hmm. And I like the idea of writing a story about a creative person. Um, eventually, I settled on, a, uh, on using a, a stand-up comedian who is a good stand-up comedian, but he hasn't, like, not, the world has not, he's not yet, he's not a, He's not Chris Rock. He's not this massive superstar. So he finds himself asking constantly, should I even be doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, and I, the, really the hook, the, the kernel of the novel was someone like that, the stand-up comedian who meets a gang of thieves who have a more mysterious and exciting life. And whether you will, how willing we might be to kind of throw away the things that we love, doing the thing we love for just like that, that twinkling, glimmering, unknown, mysterious, exciting thing, that little jewel, um, and how easy it is to, yeah, to throw away what we have for the sake of the mysterious unknown and what a mistake maybe that can be. So Theo, as you said, comic, Mm -hmm. family of grocers. Yes. First of all, he goes into a sports gambling uh, operation. Yeah. Then, Then the thievery. Did you, like have to dive deep on each of these like like did you have some knowledge of kind of like 
the comedy world or like the grocery biz or like because like I feel like you had to kind of craft uh-huh. areas that ring true in terms of experiences, right? Like when he's talking to, uh, I guess it's he's a Czech comic, Severin. Yeah, uh, something like that. Um, yeah. You know, like the way that like that guy would behave as a comic versus like the the swearing guy, Steve, that yeah. like, you know, that there are these personalities and how you get on with this woman who books the club. Mm-hmm. And, and then like, you know, specifics around cleaning the nuts when they're spilled <laughs> and, and stuff in yes. the grocery business. Like all of these things seem like you've had to kind of like dive deep on each of them or like do a fair bit of research to to create some veracity? Yeah. I mean, everything comes out of an essential curiosity. So these pieces, I'm, you know, writing about groceries after shopping for groceries for decades, for years, or going to see comedy. And I'd done a little bit of improv comedy over the years. So it's kind of seeing that world. But then, so you kind of have a curiosity and interest seen enough to, to start sort of making something up. But then I always think about, for me, research is all about figuring out what you don't know you don't know. Mm. So it's not so much like, what do, where do comedians sit when they're backstage? Because sure, that can be, you know, you want to know, do they sit in the crowd? Do they sit in a green room? You want to know the answer to that, but that's pretty easy to find out the answers to those specific questions. But you want to submerge yourself in a world a little bit to get the feeling of the place, to be able to intuit the way that different characters' motivations would work. So, for instance, for stand-up comedy, I knew how stand-up comedy clubs worked. I could Google, you know, I didn't need to research it in that way, but I went to see a bunch of stand-up, deliberately going to see stand-up nights that were of bad comics, bad comedians, Mm. uh, kind of unsuccessful, not, not like open mic first timers, but people who had been doing it for a while but are still in the trenches to see what does that feel like? What, is, what, are, the, what's, what are the expressions on their faces? What's that interior? Trying to kind of understand the interior world and the, the landscape of those lives. And similarly, like watching in grocery stores to kind of notice the secret life of grocery stores and what's happening among the people that work there. Um, yeah, that was the more... So you say finding out what you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. How do you address that gap in knowledge? Like, like to like you just open your eyes wider or like go in without questions? Yeah. Because those questions are already kind of predicating an answer. That's right. You have to kind of just be more hyper attentive or patient. I mean, in some ways, this book is about trying to learn that lesson of how can we live our lives in a way where we pay more attention to what is wondrous about the everyday lives we're leading. But I think of it a little bit as like being on hol- when we're on vacation, if you went if we went to um if we went together on a holiday to Thailand or even to Minneapolis and uh but you know somewhere especially somewhere exotic, you can be walking down the street and you say, "Oh, look, there is a cat, like a Thai cat." How and there's something fascinating about a cat here in Thailand. Or look at that stop, that store. It's a dry cleaner, a Thai dry cleaner. And how just the, really the banal things of life when you're traveling gain a real, like, a sparkle. I totally get that. I loved going to grocery stores when I go to exactly. different countries. Exactly. It's like, it's so, here, there's nothing interesting at all. But you, go, you just go to a grocery store somewhere far off and there's something magical about it. And to some extent, I think you have to kind of, it's important to get, for, it's important for our happiness in our lives. But certainly as a writer, to approach a space with that kind of attitude to try to look around it and remark things with with that sort of acuity. Is that why Theo's on a bike? 
like that he's a cyclist <laughs> is that he's not traveling fast enough that I've never thought of that, by. but yeah, I think that might, I think that that's true. That help. I mean, yeah, you're more present on a bicycle. I think in your surroundings, a lot more present than you are in a car or when you're commuting, certainly on a bus or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you've got these different milieus. One of the things that I think is like recurrent about them are like these, like you were talking about trap doors. There's like these hidden spaces in mm-hmm. all of these, right? Mm-hmm. Like the spot at the back in the mm-hmm. comedy club or like, you know, leaving out the back way. Mm-hmm. The grocery has the office downstairs that, it, you know, his mom operates mm-hmm. out of and he, he goes down to. Uh, you know, there's this cafe slash hardware store. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> with like a, a, a sub level. Yeah. Um, Beer and screwdrivers. I mean, not the cocktail, but no, the but like, and, and yeah. weirdly enough, all in shoe boxes, which yeah. I think is like, it's just a fascinating detail. Um, like, is this to kind of hint at like the weird stuff that happens below the surface in people's lives? Yeah, I think it is. Yes. I have a love of, I mean, it's one of the things I love about Montreal, and I've only been in Winnipeg today, but it's the impression I kind of have of Winnipeg and uh, so far and from my friends here is I really have a love of cities where they will surprise you in kind of uh, an incredulous they can be in incredulous way. They can do things that don't seem like they should be there. You know, behind this bland exterior is a is a kind of paradise of uh, hardware store slash cafe. Or here under this uh, under this home is this cozy basement. That idea that um, even things that look kind of bland or worn out places that feel sort of shabby and run down, they can really have these secret gardens and these clubhouses and these. Um, treasures hidden in them and that's a feeling that I always loved in kind of literature even as a young person I read books by Daniel Pinkwater um, about New York after hours sneaking out to repertory cinemas you know at midnight at age 12 these kinds of things happened in his books and that idea that oh that this bland city outside the window has all these secret spaces that you can gain access to um, was just like that's the magic of that. that's the actual magic that is around us all the time. Is that like kind of the, like, cause you're talking about, you know, looking at the tie cat and like kind of finding the joy uh-huh. in the mundanity. Is that kind of like the weird kind of like echo or like warped mirror version of that, that there's like this secret world happening below the mundane, like not just a, that we, we should look at the, the mundane in a different way and find, find joy in it, but that there's like something else going on in undercurrent. Yeah. I mean, that the, there. I think there really is the fantastical, the unbelievable, the unimaginable in our real life, if you're lucky, but I think most of us in your real life, if you're kind of paying enough, paying attention enough to see it. My first book I always used is about is based on a true story. This one is not at all based on a true story, but I, I like 14 year old millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, but I like to think about, um, I, I think about how I love, um, you know, untrue stories, lies, fiction that feels true, you know, that has this kind of inherent truth to it, or true stories that feel like they have to have been made up. And in some ways, I think what we're talking about is a kind of inverse of that, which is that the world is true, it's real, but it's full of all these little secrets and passageways that um, you might think someone just made up. 
The other kind of like weird space is is the space within this wagering world mm-hmm. that uh, you know uh, Theo joins this group, the, the Rabbit's Foot, mm-hmm. and basically in the initial thing, he's just basically processing data points for like a, a, a gambling. Yeah, he's uh, like a low code. level code computer guy. Right, and but the the crux of this like success of this organization i think cuz mm-hmm. they don't call themselves a company yes. uh is like the like margins like the small mm-hmm. areas mm-hmm. in which like they go against expected outcomes or against kind of popular outcomes mm-hmm. and that's where the the money is to be made that's where like the the juice is yeah you just need to get over 51% right of, you know and it seems to me like the that's another one of these spaces like the the you know uh space b- below the the cafe slash hardware store that mm-hmm. like all of these things seem to happen in just like a tiny like marginal space yeah right the marginal space uh yeah it is yes like there's yeah there's there's a little extra this little extra space which is where the, all the magic is kind of like poured into all these coding companies are sports people who are using computers to predict race horse races you know it, all of their energy is going to be that little bit more confident than the the bookies are so they can make their their little bit of edge was that like purposeful to bring in sports gambling to this that it had some sort of like connective tissue to these kind of I mean, I like the idea of outsmarting fortune. You know, um, that's what these kind of algorithmic sports gambling it sound, can sound really mathy and esoteric, but really all it is is using whatever data you have to bet really, really smartly. So, you know, knowing based on this horse's past results, I think the odds of it winning are actually a bit higher than what the stated odds are and things like that. And these exist. There's like, companies that make hundreds of millions of dollars betting on things like that. Mm-hmm. And I like the way, just like an actuary science where um, someone can say, okay, you're, you're 37, you weigh this much, you're this tall, do you smoke? Okay, where do you live? All right, you, I predict you will live this long. You're gonna and die that's how, age, I mean, yeah. insurance policies all work on this kind of uh, outsmart. You know, it's, you know, who knows what will happen? It's random, it's probability. But using a certain kind of arithmetic, you can make a smart calculation. And so in the arts, we kind of think we can do the same thing or we a lot of people are wrestling with how much they can or can't do the same thing. If I'm working on a new work, what can I do to make it more success, more commercially successful or more critically successful? Or what are the what are the you know, there's a cat on the cover of my book. That's because someone in the deep. Yeah, the deep sent deep dark heart of Penguin Random House crunched the numbers and saw, okay, cats sell 6% more books than the same book without a cat on the cover. I mean, there's not really a cat in the book. There's, there's sort, of, sort of cats. Right. Uh, uh, so the same kind of calculations are like always to kind of outsmart luck. And this book is about, uh, it's about attempts maybe to try to outsmart luck and perhaps how futile that really is. Because anytime you're outsmarting, trying to outsmart luck, you're again just focusing everything on the outcome you're making everything about I, I really want to get a certain outcome how can I outsmart probability to get to that outcome and by focusing so much on outcomes on the destination and not the journey you're really missing all of those wonders along the way the ends and not process yeah so with you then as a writer mm-hmm. are do you have to remind yourself to like 
enjoy the process and not like hew to the ends, right? Like, because yes. obviously you have to reach a certain point, right? Like, of this course. book has to end and it has yes. to be published. Yes. Are you like, oh man, I need to like keep my eye on that end goal, or is it like I just need to find joy, find purpose in the process of this writing? You you just need to find. Well, there's two parts. There's I think there's two kinds of process for uh, for me. One is I need to find, recognize the satisfaction and fulfillment I get from going to work and just wrangling sentences all day or for a big chunk of the day. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the process of, and I want to be a writer and write stories for a long, long time, hopefully, mm-hmm. you know, that I can have, I can publish, I can write many books and keep doing it and that kind of long goal. Right. I definitely don't want to be distracted. Like, and that doesn't feel like a destination, the idea of having a long life of writing. That's not like a set outcome. It's no, kind of no. A, it's a, kind of a, a, a road I want to walk on for a long time. And, but I do think that it's a, a mistake, and I, I'm constantly having to remind myself this, to worry too much about what, you know, uh, what am I making? How well is it doing? How well do I need it to do? I went to an Indigo this morning and signed seven copies of my book for the stocks. And part of your brain is always like, what does that mean? What does that mean? Mm. What does that mean? And it's like, don't worry. Like, don't, you can think about that. It's part of, you know, everyone's got to pay their rent, but um, it's much more important to think of, oh, I'm in Winnipeg here talking to you, hopefully meeting some readers, uh, introducing my book to people. How wonderful, you know, this thing that I slaved on uh, alone for so long, people are going to read it, and and um, I'm kind of sharing this world and this artist's life with with the readers and other writers. One thing you kind of have to face as a writer, then sharing it with readers, is the readers bring different things to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you ever surprised that like a, a read on a book of yours, like that you feel it's one thing, but then someone comes at you and is like presents you with a wholly different take? Well, my first novel. I had a lot because this book's just come out, so I haven't met as many readers yet. But my first novel, Us Conductors, is for me was very much a, a meditation on true love and maybe the capacity on lying true love. So the idea of what happens when true love may not have been as true and as faded and as real as you think, and what does that mean, and so on. And I'd meet a lot of readers for whom it was just a book about <laughs> true love, and they hadn't kind of noticed those moments of fragility or maybe of, of fiction, of uh, fraudulence or something. Um, and that was interesting because it made me th- know them, you know, the same, it told me something about them in that they didn't see the ways that they were so dazzled by the idea of the kind of the story that may tell themselves about a, tr- a real, true, beautiful love story, mm-hmm. that they didn't notice the kind of, uh, fraudulence of it and it makes me think about their <laughs> their lives how many you know how many times have they fallen in love and not realized that this isn't such a good uh, situation they're in so there's those kind of funny moments but then I also had a really striking moment uh, a couple of weeks ago I was having a conversation with someone and we were talking about not so much about books but about music and we were talking about the 15th anniversary of um, the first Arcade Fire album, Funeral, which was an album that came out when I was, you know, about 20 and was really, really important to my life. I was part of that scene in Montreal. And and there's this con- constant refrain in Funeral where the singer talks in the lyrics. They talk about us kids, you know, the kind of battles and hopes and dreams of us kids. And I was saying how much us kids really, as a phrase, really resonate. Like, I'm one of those kids. Whenever, 
Win Butler sings that I, he's singing about me. I'm one of those kids. That's the general. You know, I was there, and then the person I was talking to asked, "Oh, th- so it, did the title of us conductors come in any way from us kids?" Uh, and I was, I was literally like um, speechless. <laughs> <laughs> like the hairs stood up on my arms, and I thought, um, maybe. <laughs> like I don't know where mm-hmm. us conductors came from, and so. Uh, yeah, that's a case of a reader like seeing something written in the tea leaves of the book that I hadn't noticed myself. Right. You mentioned there's the cat on the the cover, yeah. but there's not necessarily cats in the book. But there are birds in the book. Yes. And this is something that Theo notices recurrently. Yes. Uh, I'm curious about that decision or like that inclusion, because um, obviously, like birds can have sort of different symbolic meaning mm-hmm. in, in mm-hmm. literature. Uh, like, how important was working that in? How like did did you feel like it was a relatively easy thing to introduce or did you worry that oh, maybe I'm like really pushing all these mentions of birds? Or? Yeah. I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, on a simple craft level, there's the element of just wanting to introduce an element of the fantastic before the book really goes off the rails. So you're maybe a little bit less surprised, but I've also thought a lot when I was writing it and thinking about lands, urban landscapes and, uh, like birds are really strange. Birds are quite extraordinary. You know, any of us who's sort of sat down on a bench and really watched a pigeon for a long time or a swan or a goose or a, like a Canada. I don't know what birds you get here. We definitely uh, geese. Yeah. Uh, like they're so alien and weird and kind of wondrous, I, wondrous, you know, watching their necks move and how kind of agile uh, they can be on the one hand and then how clumsy and ungainly they are on the other hand. And then the feather, the feathers, I don't know. I just, they're, they are so kind of strange and extraordinary. And so, yes, in the book, there's kind of weird birds flying in from all over as a signal of you know, something strange is going on. But uh, some of that's just normal. I mean, every city is full of birds and there's something fundamentally strange about that. They come back, you know, springtime, oh, the birds are coming back. What? Like, how how strange is that? Birds flying up from South America, you know, to come and hang out in our chili, uh, to eat our croissant crumbs that we're eating in the park. Um, I find that there's something, yeah, something f- fundamentally magical in that. And I think I wanted to force it, like, push it a little bit further so the reader um, maybe pays attention to that a little bit more the next time they see a sparrow hopping around on the ground. Are there moments like where you want people to notice it, but you don't want to push them to it? Like, mm-hmm. is is that a, like a tough line? That's to... really tough. Yeah, that is really tough. That that writerly, um, yeah, I mean, well, tr- trying to create an effect or trying to lead lead the writer, the reader to water without having forcing them to drink. You know, you want them to make their own observations and notice things first you know I, w- I want the reader to have a sense of what's going to happen at the end of this book a little bit before Theo does um, but not too much so before. obviously that they that it's not satisfying mm-hmm. or um, uh, the book's full of that I remember that us conductors as well like there's a char- the main character is secretly married what I mean is that it's not clear it's basically more and more references to a wife but you never see the wife and the, until a certain part in the book. And this kind of, I wanted to have this kind of mystery and confusion for the reader. Wait, who is this? Who's this Katya character? Why, why, why are we not here? Wait, he's married? Then where, why aren't we seeing her? But I really had to 
um, had a lot of conversations with my editor, my, with my publisher, about you know explaining this. You know, at a certain point, wait, who? People are going to be confused here. They don't know who this character is that you mentioned in passing. And that really is the craft of the book of trying to find, or one of the elements of craft is trying to find the right amount to to tease. To or withhold, to, like, to yeah, give. Because, I, I mean, if a, writer's, a reader is too confused, they're going to put the book away. Right. Um, spinning. There, there's a few instances of hmm. reference to spinning. At, at one point, there's an olive table with all the olives are spinning. Mm-hmm. And, and at one point, Theo's described as spinning. And I'm curious about this notion of like m- movement without motion yeah. in some sense and, and whether that's like an authorial statement in some way. Like, is that something I, that you would... That's an interest. Well, here we go. We're having one of those conversations this is, where... This is the us conductors, us kids thing. Yeah, I mean, there's something very interesting, you're right, about like turning around and finding yourself in the same place but transformed by the rotation the revolution, the re- literally the revolution. The yeah. uh, that's an interesting thought. I never thought of that. So the, the, that wasn't necessarily. I can't like say that was a, a conscious, a conscious thing. But that doesn't. I believe very strongly in the dream logic of of good books, where right. yeah, something's going on, and you the, kind of enter a fugue state of some sort. Well, just you you make decisions, and you're not always sure why they feel right. I mean, every a large proportion of the words in a novel are arbitrary choices. Even if you know the story you're going to tell, do you say that the character walked? Do you say they strolled? Do you say they loped? Do you say they meandered? Do you say they sauntered? Any of the, And they all have slightly different variations. And can I put into words exactly what the difference is between loping and sauntering? I could, but it's really subtle. So the word you choose is a really is a mixture of sound and your own personal associations and your memory associations and then associations you don't know why you have them. And and trying to build a character too, right? Because you want whatever the descriptive word is to ring true to that To match person. that character, right. But why, <laughs> you can have the sense, okay, no, Theo would lope, he wouldn't meander. Why? Like why? And again, you can't always articulate that. And so it's both on this kind of micro level of which word you choose or how you structure the sentence. Is it, do you say it where... Uh, he wandered, um, or he was wandering, or, you know, the use of, I've spent so long just moving a comma around in a, you know, deciding how to, how, or what order to put a string of adjectives mm-hmm. in, um, and I couldn't tell you why I make a lot of those decisions. Can you tell me why the decision to, like, create sort of different, mm, like, narrative methods within the book like you mm-hmm. have a series of letters yes. uh, between Theo and Lou you have like a fake uh, excerpt from a an academic piece yes. and like you, you use some like you an break from some of the, the novel yeah the the sort of narrative thread and, and tell it in a different way what would the, what was the intentionality behind that I think that's about just try, I mean experimenting with different things I haven't done before but also I wanted to this book to be a pleasure uh, a certain kind or like a book that gives the reader pleasure in a way that some of the books that I really like give me pleasure um, and part of that is the pleasure of different kinds of surprise so we've talked about these trap doors of a book kind of taking an unexpected turn but also like the text taking an unexpected turn almost like the text changes color oh I was reading this book now I'm reading an excerpt from an academic journal now I'm reading characters' letters, or especially the novel, where it really kind of begs the question of why am I reading 
another novel within this novel. Um, but the surprise of that, and hopefully none of it goes on so long that you get, you're like too impatient trying to get back to the, you can always just flip ahead. <laughs> but uh, but I, I like that idea of almost the mixtape or, or, or the pleasure of you turn a page and you really don't know what's going to happen next. You know, you may not even be in the same character voice. The one thing I thought of that in, in reading it, like, so the letters from Theo allow you to get into his mm-hmm. head more Yes, directly. that's very true. Yeah. Was that like you needed some interiority for your protagonist? Yeah. Well, I mean, you. Uh, there's all kinds of, uh, as a writer, some of writing is like this dreamy, um, um, impulsive, uh, generative, protean act. And some of it really feels like, okay, I have to, how can I really make use of every part of the antelope? Like I've killed an antelope. How can I make use of every part? So you've got a book as you're writing it now. Okay. There's going to be these, maybe one of the reasons to include letters in this case is I was going to, I knew I wanted to have a relationship. So Theo's girlfriend, but I didn't want her. <laughs> how can she, I didn't want her to be in the picture. I wanted her to be somewhere else. So if she's somewhere else, how can I teach you about the relationship? You can mm-hmm. do it through flashback. Um, that's the main way. Or you can do it through, I guess, some interior monologue where you're thinking about the person in a kind of present and telling the reader. But it's also uh, one interesting way is with writing letters. And then once you decide, okay, I'm going to have letters, well, what else can I do? What else can these letters accomplish besides just telling you who Lou, the woman he's writing to, is and trying to find other things? So I remember... I had a draft. I was partway through a draft. I went to see I- the poet Eileen Miles read, um, and I came back thinking, "Oh, I think Eileen Miles talks the way Theo thinks a little bit more. Like Theo thinks a little bit more, like or maybe writes a bit more like Eileen Miles than I would have guessed." So I've been writing this character, and I knew how he spoke and so on, but I decided that I wanted to make his kind of his writer's voice because all of us you know when we I'm sure when you write a letter to a loved one you have a slightly different voice than the one you use to talk to them Mm -hmm. Um, and it was learning okay I can tell I can teach myself and the reader something else about Theo by having him write in a voice that's a bit different than the voice he uses as he just hangs around talking to his family and um, and make them maybe make the reader like them more or, or like them less depending on the moment right well the book is The Wagers. I quite enjoyed it. I know you're talking about whether people will enjoy it. I quite enjoyed it. I hope people will check it out. Uh, Sean, thanks very much for sitting down and talking about it. Thanks. It was great to be here. part is always many miles away from here If leaving on the regular is what I've got to do I 
Until I've cut the record that I've always wanted to Don't blame yourself, you never could contain me anyway Forces hard at work on me will hurt you every time Like waking up to find your lovers left a note and run And took his pound of flesh from you in more ways than one Poor honey, you've been hurting something Trying to wrap your head around me been burning down a highway headed south you can't watch me leave you like a blackout again you take it on yourself you let the darkness in blame my deviations on a detail you'd forsaken the king he had is dancing Beatles had their hair like them You compensate for quality That was always really there now Poor honey, you've been hurting something And trying to wrap your head around me now Been burning down a highway headed south You can't watch me leave you Like a blackout again she put in if I can't reciprocate the love she does give if I belong to places I ain't been yet poor honey you've been hurting something trying to wrap your head around me now I've been burning down a highway headed south you can't watch me leave you like a blackout again anytime I try and be more than just a friend it's all lights out like a blackout again I'm a son of a gun when I'm on the run, a tail without a kite. Well, just like a friend, mom or an aunt, she always sets me right. 
But I'm overdrawn She's my queen On the money She always knows What's good After a long day When I'm in the clouds She brings me down She's never outdone Kinder than I deserve She's more than a friend And had I the nerve Or any good sense Maybe I'd tell her then I meant what I said When I'm overdrawn, you're my queen on the money As you always know what's good After a long day, when I'm in the clouds You bring me down studio with sam weber thanks very much for coming in and playing some songs anytime thank you for having me touring with tara lightfoot right now and i mean ostensibly so you're the supporting act but you have a new record yeah yeah we put our new record um october 25th so i guess that's last week now yeah yeah last friday uh everything comes true that's right um when it comes to like a brand new record opening for someone do you kind of cherry pick your favorites off the record how do you kind of build a set honestly i guess we'll be figuring that out tonight okay this is it this This is is the the, first yeah as was that um session i just played a lot figuring out too you know it's just it's just like because when i play with my band i tend to like guitar playing wise i tend to like orbit the rhythm section so i found i was just orbiting a rhythm section that wasn't actually there Hmm. (laughs) which is i don't know how it's going to translate on the radio so i hope it sounds okay but yeah similarly we'll just kind of um yeah, we'll just kind of feel it out. We'll, we will cherry pick the songs we like, but I mean, we're trying to get in as much of it as possible, you know, and for the, yeah, for the rooms too. West End's a bigger space, so we'll try and right. fill it out a little bit. Yeah. Um, 
when it comes to the recording in, in, in the studio then, like, are you doing stuff like live off the floor so you can orbit the drummer or like kind of like this record was build the within first, the band? Or? Yeah. This record was the first time we, we did that and, or I, we sort of yeah, took that approach of doing it fully live and yeah, it's addicting. Once you've kind of done it, you kind of get the whole unit working together, the whole band working together and it's a really cool way to play music and I just I, I love it so much and it really it demands a lot of trust from your band but I definitely have it with the guys I'm touring with so I'm excited to do more. Does that allow you like the spontaneity or like the the kismet of a moment like that you wouldn't necessarily have planned or like rehearsed when when you're doing multiple takes and everyone's tracking things separately and it it's yeah isolates it's, things. It's the it's almost that approach to recording is feels like the antithesis to like like writing a part and like playing a part you know like it's almost like because i mean if it doesn't the the kind of the ethos behind it or the the uh is almost like you you run in the opposite if if you play something one way and it feels good you almost try and run in the opposite way because it's almost like if anyone who plays musical knows sometimes you record a demo of a song and then that becomes the one that's the most dear to your or like true to the song like your impression of the song you think of that demo and -hmm. then you go to maybe into a studio and you try and record it for real and doesn't actually translate as well i think a similar thing occurs when you're in a studio if you if you really land like a melody or something it sometimes can only happen that good one time so the people that we were playing with us on this record like they were it was almost like they they'd hit their marks on each, like they hit the mark on one take and then they just run in the other direction sonically like the next take they do something totally harmonically different which is so cool you know but it's it's also like you know you have to you have to get really good at letting go of things that you like on the takes you know it sounds like you appreciate that impulse but how do you then like suss out what's the the song for the record like the tra- the take for the record then if you're kind of like oh I dig where you went and you ran away from what we did the first time but like you know if if things are so divergent or like disparate how do, how do you kind of bring them back into I alignment mean, you have to trust the producer you know or if you're in that role i guess yeah it's just it's just kind of your intuition and and like or you know yeah yeah it's just trust i guess so trusting the producer tyler chester yeah uh what was that kind of dynamic or relationship like then it was it was cool like i hadn't this was the first record i had i'm i like to engineer and produce music as well and this was the first time I'd like had nothing to do with any of that stuff, you know. Like I didn't, I didn't move a microphone one time, and just kind of played played the songs. And I mean, it allowed me to kind of I think go deeper into the lyrics of the songs, which is something when you're when you're setting up mics for yourself and hitting the space bar, hitting record, doing all this stuff, and you don't, I don't know if you necessarily are able to. I'm I know I'm certainly not able to kind of get inside the music to the same degree I am if someone else is. It's just allowing me that space to do it. You know? So this frees you to focus on the material and not like the mechanics of it. Big time, I think. So speaking of the material, the lyrics. Yeah. Uh, I mean, songs that you just did for us, there's like storytelling songs. There's, you know, like I feel like you put yourself in the place of, you know, someone who is dealing with an unwanted pregnancy in the one track. And uh, there's like political and social things you touch on. But then there's also kind of like nostalgia, like like you talk about Elvis and the Beatles and I'm curious kind of like where your songwriting comes from or like do you write with purpose like an intent for a song it's like the intent is more emotional I think than literal a lot of the time I mean sometimes like that song everything comes true um it's the title track of the record and it's 
it was like every once in a while I'll kind of find like I'll write a tune that seems to just like land on it seems like it's a landmark for where where I'm at kind of in my life you know I'll kind of hit something really like really literal you know but otherwise I feel like a lot of the time you're kind of I feel like I'm trying to catch those moments that are that feel true to me and true to it's true to put in a song but they're not um necessarily it's like factual and laid out for you you know like the like the black the blackout tune that you referenced with the Beatles the Beatles and Elvis um lyrics in it um yeah so if you're trying to capture that do you then for for a collection of songs like a record like this is it only like a certain period that you're looking at songs from like or do you ever kind of go back and revisit songs because it sounds like they the who you were when you wrote them might be different from the who you are when you're playing them now yeah and i think like that speaks to if whether or not they end up there because if they're still feeling by the time we go to record if they're still feeling like they're in the pocket and they're in there where where i'm at then it'll just feel natural to want to do them i don't think i think we've yet to pull a song that's like existed before the previous record like everything seems to kind of get written after or during the making of a of a previous record you know what i mean and then we kind of just take that chunk like it's like doing your taxes or something you go back to the term. last filing year yeah. yeah yeah exactly um so when it comes to that then and you're gleaning from the the songs that you've written in that time period how do you collect or, or collate and, and put together what you think is an album i think it does a lot of the work i mean i kind of pick at songs like if they're not feeling if they're not feeling great i'll kind of just keep picking at the lyrics and changing harmony and stuff simplifying things and sometimes making things more elaborate but usually just trying to distill them down and it kind of they kind of decide for themselves like it's just the ones that feel the best you know and it's that it yeah it doesn't um it's not so much a decision though i guess as it is just the what feels natural at the time of making the record well one decision you made is to cover a kate mcgarrigal track yeah. mendocino uh, i'm curious about a, what led you to that song, and, and B, of all, of all the songs you can cover in the world, why that song for this record? Well, okay, I came across I came across that song because I saw a version of Sam Amidon and Martha Wainwright do it, and Martha Wainwright's her daughter, and I saw the version of them singing it. I think maybe Justin Vernon from Bonnie Iver tweeted it like six years ago or something, mm. and it was just this recording. And then, of course, I, like, I just fell immediately in love with that performance in that song. And I think that's... And it kind of led me back to Kate and Anna's version, which is just incredible. The, the performances on it are just stunning. The strings are amazing. And I think that's, I mean, it's not so noble as to say this is my only reason for cover songs. So I just like the song. But I think part of the reason to cover songs is just to kind of um, give pause and thanks to great songwriters who have made those, who to really kind of, yeah, to pay respect to like a really beautiful piece of art, you know. I think like, and then hopefully maybe somebody will um, listen to my version and go digging for the original version down the line. Who knows? It's totally possible someone kind of like reads the liner notes, realizes it's not your song, yeah. and then discovers the McGarrigal sisters or something. That would be incredible. That would be meaningful, you know, totally. In terms of uh, like how it fits with the record, then, like, did you think about whether, like, you know, it's a it's a song you really like and you and you love it, but like, did you think like this? fits snugly with the rest of the material or like i think it did like it kind of it happens at a point in the track order that just seems to kind of dip um and like honestly we 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 didn't record a ton we did about 15 tunes 
like in the studio and we ended up with 10 on there mm. and so we had an opportunity to kind of see what worked and what didn't and just kind of curate later on and be able to take risks on what we went for you know kind of distilled it down to those 15 we wanted to try and and then just saw what worked so everything comes true is the album title yep. it's the lead off track uh was that always going to be the case like was this the song that was emblematic of the rest of the material i feel like it was always uh, this uh, this often happens and it never it usually it, it this rarely works out like this where i like have an idea of oh if the record's going to be called this and then it just kind of goes forward and it ends up being called that or you know you get those ideas far out and they end up coming to fruition that way and but yeah this was a rare case where like i'd known for a while as soon as i wrote that song I was like that seems like at least more so than how it spoke to the collection of the music it was like where i was at that song and like um that title just seemed enigmatic enough to describe how i felt about where i was at with my in my life at the time you know you felt was, enigmatic not enigmatic but the title itself was enigmatic okay yeah okay it's but kind of just it's kind of like you know what i mean it's kind of enigmatic might be the wrong word it just feels like a bit subversive you know it's not on the nose you can't read that title and just everything like everything comes true what does it mean for something to like what is you know it kind of puts you on a goose chase a little bit so if that represents where you were at uh, like if this album represents where you've been at in the last little while do you listen to your old records and kind of like wonder about the person that was when you made those I, I, I do, yeah. And I think I can pick up, I can pick up um, insight into who that person was. But at the same time, I listen back and I don't know if I had the capability of really articulating it at the time. You know, it's taking years to feel like I'm getting, just starting to get to a place where I can, um, I can kind of translate my emotions and, you know, into mu- into my songs, you know, like a little better. It's getting closer. I don't think those old records do that very well, but they do something, you know. It's still like, it does not to detract from them, but I definitely like think there's been a, a development in that regard. Did you have to learn to contend with your emotions before you could write them? I had to learn, I think it just like, I had to learn to like, just learn to chill out and be less anxious or something you know and sit with stuff like even just I feel like two years ago I would have been like really stressed out to come in here and like play songs and talk to you and they would have been be these what they were these performances it would have been I feel like they would have the ones I would have done two years ago would have been worse simply just because I was anxious about them but really I think now I'm able to sit with a song in the moment and reflect on how it's unfolding a little more, like in real time. Mm. You know? Have you done mindfulness practicing or which mindfulness? Uh, mindfulness, like it seems like you just are lots, mindful. Lots of thinking and medit like meditating a little bit, but more just finding my own way of just slowing down. I think. Right. Before I let you go, I want to get you to pick a track that we can play off the off the record proper, so that people can hear kind of the the band version of things. Cool. Yeah. Play the play the last one. It's called No. Okay. That's that's a fun song. It's about this trip that actually Tara and our friend Luca and me all took. We went from um, Luca and me drove from Toronto. We met Tara in Nashville, and then we drove to Los Angeles and back up the coast. And there's this big road trip, and that's kind of what that whole song's about. Sounds like a great road trip. Yeah, she like she was staying at Daniel Lanois' house, and she actually stole 
well, she didn't steal because she was staying there. She was welcome to them. She she brought us some grapefruits off of his tree, mm. and they're still the best grapefruits I've ever had. Fresh off the tree. Yeah. Don't don't mention those in the song, but sure enough. Well, Sam, thanks for coming in and playing some songs and chatting. Thanks so much for having me. See ya. Our-